Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards like, some greater purpose? The only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. This is Michael Mann, and I ride with Extended Clip. Welcome to Extended Clip, episode 55. I'm one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Malcolm Baum. I'm JT White. And our double feature today is Rebel Without a Cause, the Nicholas Ray film from 1955, and Bully, the Larry Clark film from 2001. Malcolm, we understand that your your heart bleeds for the youth of America, as all three of us do, um, but why'd you pick out these two youth films in particular? Yeah, you know... Um... I was thinking about Bully, and I've wanted to do an episode on Bully because I find it really fascinating. But I was thinking, what's the perfect A-side to it? And I think Rebel Without a Cause, is a. there's a lot in common going on here. Also, like, extra-textually, too. You have James Dean and Brad Renfro, two young, you know, teen stars who died, uh, you know, young, tragic deaths. And you have movies about the teen struggle, you know? Why do parents not understand us? Like Will Smith said. You know, this, that's what this episode's all about. And, you know, it's they're handled in different ways, but I don't know. I think they, sh- they share a lot in common as well. Uh, JT, had you seen these ones before? Um, I'd seen Rebel Without a Cause. Big Dick Nick Ray is uh, <laughs> one of the gods. Um, he is cinema. And uh, I don't know. I've loved all the flicks that I've seen of his. This was the first time, my first time watching Bully. Um, but I've always been very curious about Larry Clark's work because it has seemed, and I mean, through this investigation into it, like it definitely seems very similar to the other Clark, Allen, in terms of being like very brutal uh, realism. So uh, that's very grimy and poor. And so I was always interested. Yeah, I remember uh, the first time I watched Rebel Without a Cause was at a film school like screening and it was the first Nick Ray I had seen. And uh, yeah, this kid in my class like told me that Godard quote about like, uh, you know, if Jean Renoir is painting and Orson Welles is theater uh, or something along those lines, then Nicholas Ray is the cinema. Uh, and I was like, okay, I get it. Uh, <laughs> and then I watched it and I was blown away. Yeah, it's like he's he has such a great formal control and is also so great at like, I don't know, even when the social message of his films is like very on the nose, he always finds ways to make it more complicated and undercut everything that his characters do uh, through the form of filmmaking. And yeah, so I think he's a really, really great director that we have not given a proper light to. No, yeah, I feel like Nick Ray is one of my favorite classic Hollywood directors and I feel like he really does have a, a unique quality that makes him stand out from a lot of those different um, directors of that time. And I think just kind of like the raw emotion and humanity like flowing throughout his work that's especially felt here, but it's just really grasping to me and really attracts me to his work. I mean, in addition to be, being, you know, in strong formal control as well as seen in the cinemascope cinematography of this movie. Yeah, the cinemascope here is just, like, fucking unbelievable. You know, utilizing that within the house, the way that he shoots the staircase at that Dutch angle to make it all uh, leveled out uh, to use, like, that vertical... or to turn that vertical space into a horizontal one uh, to frame it for cinemascope and give it that surreal feeling that those Dutch angles give you. Uh, Just pure masterful stuff there. 
Yeah, and I think I think it's a you know sign of a master when you can kind of nail these kind of home run camera gestures that can kind of feel maybe too showy or unearned to lesser directors. But Ray finds the you know perfect emotional pinpoint uh, pinpoints to do these camera angles, and I mean they just work so well. You know something? No, what? You read too many comic books. <laughs> Well, he's real abstract. He's, um, he's different. That's right. That's right. So James Dean, we meet him uh, drunk and then taken into the police station in a great 18-minute opening sequence that takes place in a very uh, claustrophobic and, like, oppressive uh, police station, which is a great way to enter this teenage milieu of feeling oppressed and not really understanding why uh, as the title would suggest you know well i mean i think what's notable to me about this opening scene is kind of how it just kind of lays the groundwork for the rest of the movie you, you meet the three opening characters james dean natalie wood uh Salmoneo, uh plays plato and you kind of almost set up the kind of uh the template for how their interactions uh, are going to go throughout the movie, especially the friendship of, uh, you know, Plato and Jim Stark, James Dean's character. And it kind of, uh, it makes, it makes every, uh, emotion that happens after that feel more genuine. And just because of this great kind of, uh, establishment of, you know, exposition. Yeah. I mean like that shot where, uh, Jim's giving Plato his jacket because, you know, he's always cold and he's cold in the police station. Uh, you see, you know, the three characters in frame with Natalie Wood on the other side of glass looking at the two of them without them realizing it. And then the film, you know, when it climaxes is when Plato feels he's been abandoned and now he's in Natalie Wood's position uh, looking at the two of them from the outside. And I don't know, Ray is able to use just this basic triangle relationship uh not quite a love triangle but coded as such mm -hmm. through you know what wasn't able to be expressed about plato's character in the 50s like he's able to achieve such depths of like character psychology and uh just like cinematic pleasure you know through this very basic relationship over two hours too yeah and for like I don't know. It had been a while since I had rewatched Rebel Without a Cause, so I was expecting this um, to be definitely like a lot softer when compared to Bully. But I was really taken aback by just how like fucking bleak that opening sequence is. Just like I mean, the fact of having like James D be like being picked up when he's fucking wasted, and then Plato's like talking about like him like fucking shooting puppies. And it's like <laughs> that's like a fucking miserable like a miserable introduction to who he is as a person. Plato is one of the more compelling characters I feel like of classic Hollywood history. I mean, kind of just because of his, you have like you know kind of. Uh, you know, a coded kind of gay love for James Dean. There's even mm -hmm. in, in this in uh, the brief school scene. There's even a, a moment where you know you see James Dean through Plato's perspective, and you kind of have like the music swelling as you would when you'd see a hot woman on screen, stuff yeah. like that. And I mean, I'm not I'm not too well versed in you know history or whatever when it comes to classic Hollywood, but like I have to imagine that's pretty unique for the time, and kind of like the unique kind of ambiguous sexualities. I feel like is another thing that Rebel Without a Cause and Bully share because they're both kind of uh, exploring uh, places. Clark in kind of like, I don't know, maybe a less heartfelt way, I would say, 
than maybe Ray's doing here, but they're both exploring things that are not quite, you know, set in concrete, kind of these ambiguous sexualities of certain characters. The the sexuality is like, I don't know, just like the, the relationships between the characters here just feel like they're ready to burst out of the frame into real life, you know? Like Felipe Furtado's review, he says like Ray's natural emotionalism and teen angst becomes the natural order of things. And I think that this really achieves like a lived in feeling of teen angst in a way that every film before it just feels like observation, you know? Yeah, the kind of the stubbornness of James Dean character you know, kind of like he's he's such an uh, emotionally mixed bag, right? He's someone who wants to assert his masculinity, but at the same time, kind of, kind of realizes what a sham it all is, and you know, mm-hmm. it's just is is kind of just uh, just looking for affection everywhere he goes, even though you know he seems like the cool type or whatever. But he just uh, his his yearning for more to kind of burst out of the artificiality of the worlds he lives in, you know, whether it be you know the high school scene or you know just his relationship with his parents is kind of what gets him into trouble in the first place and it's it's kind of like a he allows himself to care and it kills him and i think i think that's a that's a common thread throughout ray's work is you know uh characters who have the burden of caring yeah nicholas ray definitely warned us about being a care lord yeah it's uh no good no good i mean plato look at him ultimate care lord where did that end end him up same legacy as elliot roger you know (laughs) but also like in terms of his struggles yeah malcolm (laughs) (laughs) you can can cut that if you want no keep it in (laughs) yeah i'll I'll think about it when i'm cutting this episode (laughs) Uh, what I was going to say, though, is like the way that Dean struggles with his masculinity, uh, like relates to how he wants more out of everyone. You know, he projects those struggles onto his dad and he's like asking his dad why he doesn't hit his mom, essentially. <laughs> it's like, dude, these are not the right ideas about what you're like wanting to be in life. But he's just so confused by the world around him uh, that he is just, you know kind of imitating what he sees and kind of reacting uh against everything he sees as well and that's why he you know is torn apart as he iconically states in the beginning and i like what the film sort of gets at too with class as well where like i don't know i feel like part of the reason that like dean is able to like struggle with this sort of turmoil and be listless and aggressive is because he comes from like a pretty well-off like background that has like afforded him luxury of moving like his parents like generally like while they do like fight like they give a shit about him like a whole lot like he has that like security to rebel uh so to just like if anyone hasn't seen this movie the plot of it essentially uh he meets you know Natalie Wood and also Plato, of course, and that's kind of the three characters that lead you through this uh, world of teen angst. And he goes to a chicky fight, uh, a couple of guys playing chicken with stolen cars. They witness one of their classmates die in an accident because he can't get out of the car on time. Uh, and then uh, on the lamb from both parents and police, uh, the three of them shack up in the abandoned mansion uh, that Plato had been, I guess, just chilling in by himself in his free time before. <laughs> I never saw your hands as much fun. Oh, I came here a lot of times before, but I never had fun. Why not? 
Santa's alone. <laughs> Until the cops, you know, eventually go for them and they go back to the, the Griffith Observatory where, uh, you know, Plato and Jim first met under the stars of the constellation, not unlike Woody Allen in Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> no, I really like the planetarium scene in the beginning when they're, uh, the professor is talking about the world ending and kind of like how... Uh, you know, all of their problems won't seem as significant. I don't want to make friends. Long after we have gone, and while the flash of our beginning has not yet traveled the light years into distance, has not yet been seen by planets deep within the other galaxies, we will disappear into the blackness of the space from which we came, destroyed as we began in a burst of gas and fire. You know, which is kind of funny because this is a movie that's taking their problems very seriously, and that's what sets it mm-hmm. apart from other movies at the time. But um, it does. I think it's it's uh, it, it kind of sets the tone that like the world is so confusing to these teenagers, and they're they're so conflicted, and they're just uh, they don't you know they don't know exactly where to go. I mean, I think what's I like what's going on with the Natalie Wood character in this movie. How you see her in the beginning, kind of uh, go with that you know group mentality of uh, kind of, you know, joining in and taking pleasure in, like, these knife fights and stuff. There's a lot of uh, attention kind of her taking, not a, like, a you know, a strange pleasure in all of this. And then she kind of comes to realize that she was just kind of swayed by the mentality of the group and, you know, is warmed by, you know, James Dean's affection. But I think that's a very interesting arc that's also very anag- analogous to, like, kind of, like, the group mentality that we see in Bully as well. Yeah, I feel like Wood is really going back and forth uh, in terms of what she, I don't know if it's what she believes in or how she feels about, you know, how she should be going about her teen life. Because, yeah, in the beginning, she does partake in that. But then when she comes home in that first scene we get with her parents, she's so eager to return to that, like, conservative 50s nuclear family thing that she, like, kisses her dad on mm-hmm. the face. And her dad's like, that's pretty sus. Like, yeah, I don't know, that's you know? gross. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, grown. Girls don't love their father. Since when? Since I got to be 16? Stop that! Sit down! She gets pissed off that she can't kiss her dad on the face, so she goes and watches one of her classmates die in a chicky fight. I feel like Ray is displaying these families as no sort of comfort for any of these kids, no matter how hard the families try to be, because they just simply don't see the world in the same way. And that's a very obvious thing to say about like a generation gap type movie but Mm -hmm. yeah it's like they have no choice because when the world is scary they come home and then home is just as scary so they go back out you know Mm -hmm. and with with the parents right you know even with uh james dean's parents who seem a little bit more involved you know even though they care it almost seems like they're going through the motions they're saying the right things so to speak but you know dean sees through this artificiality that you know just you know, is, you know, famously tearing them apart. Outside of, like, just, like, the family structure, they're, like, the broader institutions that are supposed to protect these kids and, like, give them some sort of guidance generally, like, don't offer anything. Like, the school uh, system, like, I don't know, it takes a pretty backseat in the flick. The relationship to, like, authority and the police, like, if they were there to, like, legitimately like to protect and like help a community they could offer some guidance i know the detective in the beginning 
offers Dean the ability to swing on by, like if he needs to talk about anything. But he sort of shoes him away when he comes by again to like sort of confess seeing his friend get killed. Just going back to the domestic one more time in each of the two main families. Uh, first off, in the Stark household, also, I think one of the reasons that Dean rebels against like his father's t- attempts at masculinity is like, I don't know what's going on with his mom, but his dad is trying to do all like the motherly tasks at one point, you know, he's like cooking Mm -hmm. for her and wearing an apron around the house and stuff. And, you know, he trips and drops her food, which Jim thinks is very funny. Uh, And then also at Natalie Wood's house, her dad calls her glamour puss, which is just even weirder than them kissing on the mouth. (laughs) Yeah, some strange dynamics there. And, you know, maybe it's a little bit outdated, right, that James Dean is upset that his uh dad's wearing an apron or whatever he's like you're you're a lib cuck dad you're you're fucking (laughs) you've subscribed to the feminist agenda but um (laughs) dude i hate when my dad is a lib cuck absolutely (laughs) childhood ruined actually just thinking about it my dad's a total lib cuck because my mom can't cook for shit and so he has to cook (laughs) all the time so Am I, I, you know, I think that's why I chose this movie. I'm, I'm so, I'm so James Dean with it. You know, I'm just, I'm, 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 I'm just a righteous loner who's just uh, looking to do the right things, and the world's just against me. So, it ends tragically, of course. I mean, like leading up to the observatory, you see shot, uh, cops just shooting at Salminio as he's running, just blindly shooting, mm-hmm. uh, and then james dean is able to like get him out of the observatory where he's hiding and you know he takes so much comfort in uh dean's presence and it's a really moving climax of the film you know where he's able to bring sal minio he wants to hand him over to the police but of course the police are evil shitheads and they turn their headlights on after saying that they would turn them off uh and immediately shoot at him and it's really, really heartbreaking. And, you know, there's a there's a line in the film, in the observatory, as you said, they're talking about how the world's going to end. And then Plato asks uh, Jim if he thinks it's going to happen at night. And, of course, Jim says, no, it's going to happen at the dawn. And, of course, this whole third act takes place overnight. And that last shot you see uh, craning up over the observatory, the sun is just coming out. You know, it's just like gray, uh, white skies kind of. And, uh, yeah, it's the end of the world for them. Like, literally, they're part of the man they just accepted as part of their, you know, uh, as corny as it is, their new family together just got shot by the police. It's the end of the world. Mm-hmm. That This is Judy. She's my friend. Four bullets for Nick Ray on this one. Yeah, I'm going to give it four bullets as well. I mean, yeah, Nick Ray is the emotional master. And what makes that ending, you know, stick so hard is kind of the scene before in the mansion where we see kind of like this family that, you know, these uh, group of friends form. And it's it's so it's so it's uh, there's a sensuality to it, too. I mean, there's like a shot where they're all kind of like laying right next to each other and kind of, you know, just enjoying each other's presence. It's there's a real touching aspect to the scene. And then just to lead it up with kind of uh, such a bleak, you know, ending, just kind of saying, you know, you know, maybe this generation's doomed. I don't know if that's what he's trying to say, but it's, I don't know, it's kind of the note you're left with. But uh, Nick Ray, never fails, glad I chose him. JT, what about you? Yeah, I'm going to give this uh, four and a half bullets. 
I think it's diminished. Like, I mean, I gave it five bullets, like when I had like first seen it. Um, I just feel like sorting out the rays that I've seen now, it's um not my favorite, but still like mm-hmm. super fucking killer. Just to hit more of what you were saying about the bleak ending like contrasted with like the little illusion they get to build of like this happy family where it's Jim, Plato and Judy there in the mansion. And it's just like, I don't know. It's the perfect surrounding for like the artifice of like a fake little family is this decaying like fucking mansion. And just, I don't know it with something that goes as high into melodrama as this and just like the depressing struggles of being a teenager and like fucking figuring out that it's like all kind of like a a dry rub and for nothing like there's there's no other way it could end than just like a miserable fucking ending where it's like yeah this is kind of how things are hey look it's just me but i'll take a dry rub over nothing (laughs) (laughs) absolutely absolutely and you could add that to the body count officially We'll be right back on extended clip. (laughs) We were all together. We were going to celebrate Easter. And we were going to catch a double bill. Welcome back to extended clip shock cinema edition. Maybe I'll leave in a little bit of that two girls, one tuck, two girls, one cup talk. Um, But anyway, (laughs) uh, (laughs) to catch you up on what we were discussing on the break, it's time for our favorite segment. Malcolm in the middle. What did you watch this week, buddy? Well, you set the theme, and I'm, I'm about to deliver. I watched Sallow, or The 120 Days of Sodom, and what an amazing movie. Truly, like, a perfect object to me. I mean, in terms of, like, formal control, I mean, I've always admired Pasolini movies because he really has, like, this firm grasp on every single shot in his movie. And, like, kind of the, um, the technique he's playing with here is a distance, you know, everything's very distance, you're very distance from the violence, you know, maybe you become a spectator, maybe you take a little bit of fun in it. I mean, I think watching this a second time, and this might be a little bit of a glib viewing of it, but I think this is how Pasolini was looking at it too. It's like, some of this is funny. Like the the look of joy the libertine has after getting pissed on the face, kind of like this strange, bizarre euphoria. It's just like, it's just kind of funny. I mean, it's it's one of those movies that has a lot of metaphorical weight to it, which is something I guess I, I usually say that as a detractor for movies, I guess. But I guess maybe there's like so much brutality in this movie that's so relentlessly bleak that maybe maybe just to earn some of it, maybe some metaphors have to be set. And I think, you know, it's all very intelligent stuff, kind of like how fascism spreads and how it operates. It's not It's not a very simple allegory. I feel like it goes into many details of fascism, like in how uh, the executors act, how their behavior, and how, you know, people under it begin to succumb to its, you know, its more uh, tantalizing aspects. And uh, it's, it's, one, it's, it's probably the, the final film of all time, right? Like, if you're to make a final film, this is a pretty good one to do. So... Go watch Solo. Hey, not not for the faint of heart. I will I will give you that. A little fair <laughs> warning. Um, don't take your kid to go see this. Uh, yeah. Call me when it's the hundred twenty days of soda. <laughs> uh, damn. <laughs> that's 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 the quarantine for Eddie. It's just been hundred twenty <laughs> days of soda. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, miss me with all that Solo shit. I think I'll just I'll just chill. No, I really want to watch it. I think we should do it for the pod sometime. 
Uh, yeah, I'd, lo- I'd love to. We already got pretty dirty with the first Pasolini we watched. That's true. And um, yeah, this is, I think, you know, it's also interesting about this movie is that Arabian Nights, the one that came before this, is very like playful with its sexuality. It's kind of like a, you know, almost a celebration of sorts of like kind of, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, interracial kind of a lot of uh, some gay stuff in there, which is like, I mean, I, it sounds like I'm listing porn categories, which makes it sound reductive, but it's like, <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's kind of like a, it's a very sex posy movie, but like, I think Solo is also kind of a response to like kind of the sexual irresponsibility of that movie in regards to like maybe depicting some teenage adult relationships. It's, this is like, this is like Pasolini calling himself out for being soft. He's like, nah, I have to, I got to atone for my sins. Very Catholic. Nice. I'm all about that trad calf life. If we've learned anything from the last week on Twitter, I think being a Catholic is the best way to approach sexual politics online. People mm-hmm. love Catholicism online. What can I, I say? Look, you asked for it, you got it. Trad calf Eddie has logged on. <laughs> Sorry, it's Edward now. <laughs> uh, what'd you watch, JT? Um, yeah. Yesterday I watched uh, Batman and Robin by Joel Schumacher. R.I.P. Yes, indeed. My roommate suggested it because of his passing. And I was like a little skeptical. Um, But then I thought back to our fun time watching 8mm. And I recently like bumped that one up from three bullets to three and a half bullets. Just thinking about how much I enjoyed it. And then... I don't know. Batman Run Robin was a great time. Not necessarily like, I don't know, not an amazing time, but like a very fun, expressive little romp. Like all the bullshit that I had seen it been given like on internet forums over the years with people using the Schwarzenegger like uh, Mr. Freeze for like reaction gifts um, is like complete fucking bullshit. Like, the movie is, like, obviously entirely aware of, like, I don't know, that type of stupid, like, campy fun. I think it's silly to not, like, to to take it, like, at face value in that regard. Um, It was just a really good time and also made me, like, think that I could potentially get on board reclaiming Schumacher. And just because it seems like a lot of his flicks, um, the ones that I'm more interested are, like, his kind of thriller ones are very stylized in a way where I feel like um, the bozo social climbing critical class was <laughs> most definitely wrong about them. There's one I'm like really itching to get uh, to hit with a watch and I'll update when I do, but it's the number 23 with Jim oh, yes. Carrey. It's like I there are a few people uh, that I follow on Letterboxd who've given it like three uh, stars. So I'm like, OK, there's like that's some praise for it. But I remember the number 23 just like haunting me on like VHS tape and like DVD ads as a young child and just like wanting to fucking get to it. Cause I was like, what is, I need to know the significance of the number 23 and how it actually controls my life because movies are real. Um, but <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm going to, that one is next on the block and uh, I'll see uh, how, how Schumacher feels. I hate to challenge you on this, but did, was that movie released on VHS? 
It was like 2007, wasn't it? Um, pro- I mean, I don't think there were ads on VHS then. I don't know. I was just thinking it was but something. I get what you mean. The video store classic. Yeah, it was a video store classic of my youth. Like mm-hmm. I have yeah. seen like the poster and the trailer for that movie. I just so many times it feels like printed onto my brain. You know, you know what's the the video store classic for me? Like the one DVD I would always remember seeing. It always stood out to me. It's literally. It, it was a documentary by Ben Stein called Expelled, and it's like, <laughs> and it's just him. It's just him in front of like a gray cover, wearing like a school uniform and shorts. And for some, oh, reason, I love this picture, dude! It looks like he's in ACDC. Yeah, <laughs> this is burned into my mind. This was I. Every time I went to Blockbuster, I saw this and remembered it. That and um, not another teen movie. Those are the two that stand out. I did rent Not Another Teen Movie. Um, the one that always stood out for me was the miniseries version of Stephen King's It. That box scared the shit out of me as a kid. Yeah, I might have been scared of Ben Stein as a kid. That <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm looking now, and yeah, apparently the last Hollywood movie to get a big VHS release was A History of Violence in 2006. Oh, damn. damn. Just barely missed the cutoff. Dude, The Young Teacher was the first film to be released on VHS. That is a weird selection. The Young Teacher. That sounds hot. The Young Teacher. That sounds like it would fit in your series that you've been watching lately, Malcolm. That's true. A little subversion. Yeah, I gotta stop watching movies about teen sex. It's probably not a not a good look in the, today's current climate. I do not need to be <laughs> stirring the pot. <laughs> Yeah, but what, Chef Eddie, what what did you watch this week? <laughs> oh, thank you, Chef JT. Uh, <laughs> I watched a few Sandler flicks. You know, I gotta say, uh, I'm gonna amend my rating on Grown Ups 2. I believe on pod, I gave it three and a half. Mm-hmm. Uh, I may have even just given it three, honestly, which is absurd. But I'm definitely going four bullets on Grown Ups 2. That is among my favorite Adam Sandler movies now. I think that and Jack and Jill are like tied for the best late period works. Um, Anyway, I also watched Sandy Wexler. And Sandy Wexler, oh boy, that is a that is a big boy movie. That is like, I don't know. He's he's doing the voices. I'll say that much. Uh, It's it's really a warm-up for uncut gems in a lot of the aspects of his performance but aside from that in terms of the happy madison auteurist route you know it's a really interesting place where the bookends of the film are an excuse to squeeze in as many people as possible and you know we've talked a lot about like the odd assemblage of celebrities in adam sandler movies And this one has to take the cake. I mean, it's just like a wedding of people toasting to Sandy Wexler, who, like, I guess got cut out of other Adam Sandler movies. You know, you got Pauly Shore, you got Judd Apatow, you got uh, guys like that alongside the usual suspects, Alan Covert and company, uh, Nick Swardson, of course. But it's it's a really touching film that I didn't think... Uh, would get me at all in terms of like the romance like I was so against it from the beginning Um, I was into the film but I was like not you know buying into him and Jennifer Hudson but the film wins you over like the best Happy Madison productions do and there's a lot of really incredible stuff in the movie to be honest um, including a nine minute closing credit sequence (laughs) to bring this to I believe the longest runtime in the Happy Madison filmography at like 132 minutes. Uh, so 
if you got a day off of work, if you're just chilling, throw on Sandy Wexler. Length should not be an issue. You just want to hang with the Sandman, don't you? I want to check that out because it sounds like Adam Sandler's version of Entourage, which I'm, I'm very there, very here for. It's Sandler trying to do Entourage directed by Jerry Lewis. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, yeah, and I think it is also the closest he's come to Jerry in terms of the the emotional arc. And like I saw someone on Letterboxd call it a, a, like a Griffith-esque morality play. And I think the morality play aspect of it actually works better than most Sandler films. And uh, it's like really... Uh, kind of harrowing in terms of his commitment to his job that he just sucks at. That's the best part of this movie is that he's like, it's a movie about a guy who loves his job, but is just dog shit at his job. What are you giving me that for? In the best position to do it. You fuck him. And then right when he's going to come, you blow his brains out. Oh shit. <laughs> Man, that's cool. And we're back on extended clip. Bully, Larry Clark, 2001. Malcolm, what is it? What is it? Well, Bully is about, it's about friendship. Bully is about, um, it's about the relationship between Marty Puccio, played by uh, Brad Renfro, and Bobby Kent, played by Nick Stahl, and kind of this, uh, um, this abusive relationship they have. Bobby is always, um, you know, demeaning Marty, literally, tr- you know, tricks him out, prostitutes him. Probably the worst friend ever rapes uh, his girlfriend and his girlfriend's friend, and so basically this new friend group that Marty has formed around him and his girlfriend, they all decide to kill Bobby, you know, as a repercussion for his you know assholeish ways. And uh, a lot of this movie is uh, some teens just in- indulging in you know classic teen activities. I'm talking sex. I'm talking weed smoke. I'm talking listening to rap music. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, a lot of but sex... I mean, talk about a morality play too, right? Yeah, yeah, and that's that's where that's where uh, Clark's kind of a weird alchemy, right? He kind of uh, he inserts this morality into his own kind of uh, pervert style. I think one one thing that's interesting about Larry Clark is that probably more so than any other director, people are like, he's just getting his rocks off. He just wants to shoot these hot teens having hot sex. You know, and he's a, and I think, you know, I think they, they, they're partially right. I mean, there's definitely some shots that, uh, definitely prove their point, but let's just suppose that's the truth and proceed from there because, um, yeah, there is kind of a a strange morality play that kind of, uh, uh, factors into this that like, I don't know, I think kind of rubs people the wrong way. He kind of like, cause people are like, well, if you're going to do one thing, just do the other, but he kind of mixes he's he mixes in morality without being a moral filmmaker of his own does that make sense yeah am i talking facts here i think the weight of his moralism like kind of doesn't compute until after you watch the film because when you think about the swinging back and forth that he's doing you know that first 20 minutes or so before they hatch the scheme uh, of murder is some of the most abrasive youth cinema I've ever seen. It's like just all of the ugliest shit, you know, uh, you could ever dream of. It's like Harmony Corinne looks like it's, you know, uh, rated PG 13 in comparison. And then you kind of swing too far the other way with the punitive justice. And then it becomes the paranoia of, you know, the police and everything like that. And it's like, I don't know, 
I think I may have underestimated it while I was watching it because I think it kind of loses me in some spots because I don't know, certain scenes just didn't quite do it for me. I feel like it's a it's a weird film in how certain scenes are so packed with energy and others uh, really take their time that it kind of gives you uh, whiplash in terms of its pacing. No, yeah, I think the middle definitely has some lulls to it. I mean, I think what's interesting about their hatch to kill uh, Bobby is that how long it takes and kind of, I think that's kind of speaking to their, you know, their dumbness as teens, kind of their listlessness and kind of uh, them not really wanting to do it. I mean, I think what's interesting about like kind of the more morality that Clark is bringing here is like, it kind of seems like they just killed Bobby because they have nothing else to do. You kind of have that didactic scene where uh, the mother of uh, uh, Lisa, uh, Marty's girlfriend is like, you know, all you guys do is, you know, just hang around. You guys do nothing. You know, you guys have no future. And they just kind of agree. They're like, uh, yeah, like that. That's it's kind of it's kind of sick. And, uh, um, and the, I think the idea is that them having you know no set path is what leads them down this one, which is um, some finger wagging. But I think I think rhythm and atmosphere are Clark's strong points, right? And what you're talking about in the first twenty minutes, and how it even kind of swings, you know, back the other way where you have the first 20 minutes that are, you know, sun-soaked, very vibrant, very uh, active camera movements. Then you kind of go swing to the other side of the movie towards, you know, the murder scene. You kind of have more of a swampish atmosphere as they're literally, you know, next to a marsh while they kill them. There's a, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of whiplash here. And I don't know if, yeah, Clark maybe doesn't quite figure everything out, but, like, I'm, I'm completely here for the rhythm and atmosphere he sets through, you know, you know camera movement and music primarily yeah i mean like one of those early scenes where they're surfing at the beach i think the first time you know you see the shots of the two girls looking and it looks you know like the first few minutes of the film did and then it cuts to the reverse and it's just like yellow and black and the guys that are surfing are completely in silhouette and it's like this dark dingy yellow but it's still like sun soaked you know and it kind of reminded me of Beau Travai and then from that moment that Beau Travai was in my head I couldn't really get it out you know in terms of the way that Clark and Denis both shoot you know male bodies moving around each other Mm -hmm. Uh, I think they eventually go in different directions in what they're trying to do uh but like you know these huge uh vistas out on the beach these characters just dwarfed by the huge landscape and then juxtaposed with the cramped interiors blasting the clean version of forgot about dre you know uh, i think that juxtaposition of like the indoor versus outdoor also calls to mind you know the nightclub versus the boot camp in uh also, I mean, for me, in terms of, like, the relationship to how or what Clark is, like, moralizing at, um, gets more sussed out in the fact that he's, like, I feel, like, definitely very sympathetic as to how these kids got there into their listless ways of behavior and, like, how, like, some of them have the prospects of getting out because of their like economic like situation like pretty much the only character who feels like they could 
like at this point in their lives, like sort of flip the slacker mode switch to off is like Bobby, who is like the most reprehensible and evil. But it's because he comes from like a decent enough background where like Lisa like says uh, to Marty that he could like get a car like his parents could like uh, get him into college and like he could have a totally functional and fine life. But someone like Marty is like trapped by his own the economic situation of his family and just being in this abusive relationship with Bobby. And that abusive relationship with Bobby is like so hard to watch feels so lived in, you know, like him fucking uh punching marty in the face while he's driving his car for like running up against the curb a little bit that had me on edge as much as almost anything in the film and like when he's breaking down the relationship to his girlfriend when they when they're planning to kill bobby you know he's just full-on ugly crying just like snot flying all over the place talking about how like he's always been like this <laughs> he always just beat the fuck out of me whatever he wanted. There's not a goddamn thing I can do about it. Ever since they were little kids, everything he did, I had to do too. And you just also have to think about the implications of like what we aren't even shown from their relationship at its most abusive leading up to this. You know, like this is apparently, uh, or at least to my estimation, this is when Marty is woken up by someone else who realizes how abusive he is so we don't even know what bobby could have done to him in the past you know uh and it feels so lived in when he's confessing all this to lisa and it's like a really emotional scene that shocked me yeah yeah and i think that a part of that is due of course to you know clark is pulling a lot of camera work they're kind of like slowly swinging cameras and probably the direction to release spittle while he cries right there's like there's also like um a lot of, there's a good amount of spit in this movie, I feel, which is like, oh yeah, which is you know that's like kind of a it works from an acting perspective, but is also kind of adds to the narrative like Clark's a pervert, and it just I I kind of enjoy it on both levels. But I mean, I think Brad Renfro really gives us a, a star performance in this movie, and it's very like I think analogous to you know James Dean and Rebel Without a Cause, both kind of a, a wounded masculinity. You know, even though it's from different perspectives, I would say they're both. Uh, giving this uh, performance of, you know, a very guys who are very, you know, sensitive, violent guys who, uh, who are, are very confused and, you know, not exactly knowing what to do with their lives and are just overwhelmed by what's going on and they react to, you know, in volatile manners and in ways where, you know, both, both of these characters are sympathized for, you know, in, in a great way. I mean, I think Clark, one, one thing Clark's trying to do here, right, is where you're, you're sympathizing with all these murderers, right, when, uh, just because uh, Bobby is such a, such a, a bad guy. I mean, you know, some of the stuff he's pulling in this movie, he's being a real jerk. Um, <laughs> to quote Norm hey, McDonald. that's not cool, man. <laughs> not cool, man. <laughs> mm, real immature. <laughs> oh, we got to do a dirty work episode. Oh, but yeah, I mean, like, I would say Bobby for sure of all the kind of leading characters that follow uh, or that we follow in movies that we've talked about on this podcast. Bobby definitely uh, ranks up there with the most evil of them all. Right. True. But also I think there's there's also like he might actually be the most detestable character, even mm-hmm. though there is still like the circumstances like Clark. I don't know. Uh, the, it's like 
I, I don't even know. It's so hard to talk about. <laughs> yeah, I think because as explicitly bad as Bobby is, Clark does leave that room to be like, there's this weird relationship he has with his father, right? And it's just strange yeah. notes that and things that happen, right? I mean, of course, you know, you have kind of like this middle class dynamic of the, the father wanting to, you know, bring his son up, start a business with him. And kind of this huge disappointment that he has that he's, you know, throwing his life away with these, you know, low class, low lives or whatever. But even like, I don't know, there's not, there's not strong implications, but things are strange, right? Like when, um, after Bobby, uh, rapes, uh, Allie, Lisa's friend, and she's leaving in tears, you know, he's seen jerking off in the bathroom with the, the door open and the father just walks in, puts his hands on his back. And, you know, it, it's, there's nothing too strongly implied there, but it's just like, they have a fucked up relationship that definitely forms. Dude, I don't think he was jerking off. Dynamics. I thought he was yeah, washing that's... his hands. <laughs> he's not jerking off in that scene, dude. <laughs> he's, he's washing his hands. I thought he was jerking off. There's Fuck. no no, dude. <laughs> he was going God like two hand insane action. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. Well, that was a bar of soap, not his dick. <laughs> that was a that was a huge fucking brick on my part. Then I was just talking no, I think that's pretty ass. sick though, because that's a, that completely changes the reading of the scene. I mean, obviously, yeah, but <laughs> <laughs> well, fuck no, me. but I think the elephant in the room in terms of his character and his relationship with his dad and why he acts the way he does is his sexuality. Like he mm-hmm. is repressing his homosexuality as hard as humanly possible. Even if it means, you know, like violating her while watching gay pornography, like in one of the more hard to watch, if not the most difficult to stomach scene that we've watched uh, on this podcast. And then right after that, like his dad, it has his hand on his back while the, the guy, I will say he is naked. He wasn't jerking off, but he is naked. And, uh, there's some contact there. there like mm-hmm. it does definitely, no, no, no. It definitely does ring back to James Dean putting hands on his father and rebel without a cause. Like no doubt about it. Even the, the scenes that like are troubling for reasons outside of like sexual assault and like the, the, team sex angle that's going on here um i think there's just something like disturbing in like the casualness in which you see like uh young kids like just around like drug and alcohol abuse like the um when it's like the the bigger sort of crew that gets roped up into the murder where you just see the little kids like around like drinking 40s and shit like that like just uh, chief and sigs there's just something like those kids fucking rule dude <laughs> i mean yes they are very cool for doing those things <laughs> but it like depresses me so much to like see it it's like i don't know when i go back home sometimes i'll like drive past the high school i went to and there was like a spot where like kids still like smoke cigarettes where they used to like where it's like officially like enough feet off of school property where they're going to do the fuck you like sig smoke. And you can tell it's like the kids who like obviously like, I don't know, rough enough that they are they're buying like cigarettes and like are in whatever situations. But it just reminds me of the feeling of driving by that and seeing just like a 16 year old just doing a fuck you gesture. But ultimately just for them the reflection back on themselves is just feels so much more depressing because it's like you know the path they're kind of going down there yeah Mm -hmm. yeah and i think there's like a there's a huge stream of indifference through this movie whether it's 
the parents just kind of um, brushing off kind of like the, these bad deeds these kids are doing. I mean, post-murder scene, there's a notable scene where Ollie is talking to her mother about, you know, if let's just say, you know, you saw a murder and you wanted to anonymously report that, you know, it's like, would that be enough? And she's like, well, what are your kids getting up to? You know? And it's, it's like, it's <laughs> such a, such a small response to, you know, uh, a huge deed that she did, you know, participating in a murder. But yeah. And then the indifference carries over to these characters where they kind of almost, there's almost an incoherence in like why they do what they do. You know, like you have Michael Pitt playing like a dope head who just seems to be along for the ride or, um, uh, the fat kid in the movie who's just, you know, wanting to seem to, to fit in. I mean, they're complacent with it, but it's just like, I mean, it's shown in like ultimately the end how they all have whiplash about like being caught mm-hmm. and then like immediately afterwards of having like actually like committed like a real murder and crime. It's like they're still like fucking kids who like have made like the biggest fucking mistake of their life in doing that they like i don't know there's like a nonchalance going leading up to the event where it's just like because even the first attempt that lisa tries to make at the murder where she like is gonna shoot him she like doesn't like fucking go through with it it's like i i think the most most of them are convinced that in going along with it nothing is actually going to happen and Mm -hmm. that's like a situation where you need to like lie and tell yourself like oh nothing's actually going to happen but then when that like that actually breaks then you can see how all the characters like sort of fracture off and like shatter like there's a scene where they're like so cavalier at like a pizza hut leading (laughs) up to it like talking about how they're just gonna fucking plug some guy oh don't you miss the pizza hut (laughs) yeah that classic design uh, you know i i I think i I like this nonchalance and how it's displayed um they're just like their conversations because like uh, leading up to that just like on the car ride over they're talking about you know one time they saw a concert and everyone started smoking weed at the same time or just like the, (laughs) the conversations they're having are just like remember your first time smoking weed it's like the most like base level shit and kind of shows that they're not putting much thought into it. And the, the thought that they do put it into it is to convince themselves. It's like, yeah, this is something cool. We're doing like, like it's like, <laughs> like immediately after the murder, when they're laughing, they're like, damn, we just fucking killed him. Like, remember when his eyes were gouged out? It's like, and they're both <laughs> laughing at it, but it's also, it, it almost seems unconvincing in a way. It's more of a way that they're convincing themselves. Yeah, and is that Alan Clark watching dailies, you know, saying, oh, dude, I fucking killed the shit out of that kid on camera today. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I think in terms of Clark's direction, there's a lot of stuff like the the general style that this works within is very uh, observant and like also immersive at the same time, you know, Uh, and I think he gets at a really good dynamic there. I think certain scenes he approaches with like a stylistic gimmick and those can be more hit and miss. There's the one scene where the camera is just twirling around in a circle as they're meeting up with someone who's arranging them to get weapons. And I have to say that scene made me nauseous and pretty uninterested um, for about a minute and a half there. But there's also other scenes like uh, one where there's a lot of quick pans back and forth between uh, a character and her mother talking in the car that I think actually works really well for the dramatic purpose of the scene. No, yeah. And like, I think one thing 
I like about this movie is also you know, part in where it suffers upon rewatching it, but kind of like this lull in the middle of the movie where they're, you know, deciding to murder um, or not, or just like they, they always seem set on murder, but they're just, they're slacking off. They're not getting to it pretty quickly. And I think certain scenes can drag here and kind of like, yeah, there's just some, some stuff that seems like pure gimmick. But I also, I also like that it's taking these slacker teens a long time to get, you know, to what they want to do. But I guess it's just a concept over delivery in some of those scenes there. And after, you know, a, a third act of guilt and paranoia, um, the feds come in and they all uh, get arrested. And the final scene is them awaiting uh, a hearing and they're just bickering like fucking teenagers. You know? You know? Jesus, who's your daddy? And Dumbo here been snitching on all of us to save their own asses, otherwise we wouldn't fucking be here today. Psst. Yeah, snitch, motherfucker. I don't know what you're doing. Leave him the fuck alone, asshole. Haven't you done enough to ruin his life? Shut the fuck up, you stupid bitch. It's your fat cousin here. Hey, man, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing here. I didn't do shit. I don't know what the fuck I'm here for. Stab him. You shut the fuck up. coming in the way they're going out you know um and their sentences range from four years to uh death by electric chair and i think this is a really good movie i i think that there are certain scenes that were less effective than others but i think the details to the cultural milieu uh i mean i mentioned harmony corinne earlier it's hard not to think about him in this trashy florida atmosphere uh and uh, especially with the like youth depravity aspect and uh yeah i think it's a really good film three and a half bullets for me what about you malcolm i'm gonna go four bullets i mean yeah i think when clark hits a rhythm kind of like towards the end once uh you know various teams of the group are uh, almost confessing to certain people trying to get alibis trying to get them to check on the marsh or whatever you're kind of hitting like this formal rhythm that is very perfect and then it's it kind of is underlined by this fat boy slim track that you know bleeds out until they uh until they're you know sentenced to life some of them and these are the moments right the kind of the perfect synthesis of like kind of his somewhat aggressive style and like his uh very apt music choices i mean in terms of being a cultural representation of 2001 right i mean this does a pretty good job i mean you have brad renfo rapping to eminem you know that's a that's a big cultural touchstone i also like how uh brad renfro marty the character marty his big emotional moment in the movie is when he's talking to his little brother who lost his earring skateboarding and he tenderly takes off his earring and places it on his ear and, you know, gives him a hug. And it's one of the more touch, it's probably the touching moment of the movie. And, um, but it's, I like how it's represented through the passing of an earring. And, uh, I think that's, what's valuable about this work. But JT, what did you think? Um, yeah, I'm going to toss four bullets up in the air for this one as well. I knew I was going to like this from the opening line. I want you to suck my big dick. And then the follow up. I want you to lick my big balls. I believe. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. um, I want you to suck my big dick. Marty, honey, dinner. But just like the way like Clark explores um, this environment of like, I don't know, trashy 
teenage squalor in a way that like at first like immerse, immerses you into like some of the pleasures of just like fucking off doing nothing and just being like fucked up all the time and i don't know in in the more moralizing aspect like he you know exactly how it has to end i mean obviously aside from like if you're not familiar with the outside source material of it like being like based on like a real murder that happened um you just know i mean from like the scene in like the fucking pizza hut they're talking so blatantly about the crime they're going to commit <laughs> they're like stupid as fuck like you know that there there's no reality where they get away with this but you can e empathize with them enough to know like he gives you the details to like know how they wound up in this situation and to like feel like i don't know you feel bad that they've convinced themselves that they can get away with this and that it doesn't matter and that like no like i don't know you, you understand why they don't give a shit mm -hmm. but uh it was a great time uh even though it's kind of miserable yeah. Also, I feel like this movie is kind of funny too in its own right. At oh, times. it is. For like, sure. um, I mean, I think I you posted this on the extended clip Twitter, but when um, uh, Bobby shows up, the shows like the male pornography they commissioned from a homeless guy to uh, uh, Ali's cousin or Lisa's cousin, I should say, and he's like, "This is weird as fuck, man. Like, I'm just gonna leave." And he's like, yeah. "I can't believe you got a guy to do this." Yeah, it's fucking disgusting, man. Nasty, dude. You and Marty do this? Yeah. We're gonna sell this to porno shops and we're gonna pay top dollar for this. This is gross, dude. I'm gonna wait outside. Wait, you don't like a fucking tape? No, it's gross shit, man, alright? I don't like it at all, alright? At all, I'm gonna wait outside. Oh, okay. You're not into <laughs> this? Huh? Like, there's. The, Clark does take pleasures in the depravity, or like, kind of like the banality. That's like when my characters. friends come over and I put on Sully and they're like, you're into this kind of shit? <laughs> you get off to this kind of shit? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, also the Michael Pitt character, kind of like the dope-headedness, foolishness of him can be, can be fun. And he seems like the nicest yeah. guy out of the bunch, to be honest. Oh, for sure. He just thinks everything is insane. <laughs> <laughs> That's That was the probably episode of one of the podcasts just being like, damn, this movie was insane. Like, it was so sick. Like, that's probably I how mean, I frankly, if we watched Scent of a Woman again, we'd probably just have that reaction. <laughs> <laughs> I've been I... thinking about more and more about Scent of a Woman. It's so strange that they made that into a courtroom drama at the end. <laughs> like, it's, a, it's like it's supposed to be a meeting with the principal, and it turns into like a courtroom drama. <laughs> ah, whatever. I was thinking about that movie recently, and I was thinking, like, it would be funny if in, like, you know how trailers in the 90s are like, this summer, Al Pacino is this. And, like, I, I'd like to, like, the tagline to be, like, who are, but, like, the trailer voice guy has to say, who are, the scent of a woman coming to theaters this summer. Because they, they should have, whoever wrote that, like, they, they knew they were, like, they're sitting on gold, right? Like, pe these, like, people are going to love the who are. And they should have taken advantage of that in the advertising. That's just my humble opinion. Okay. Um, you know what we have this week? It looks like we have an email. I don't think we've gotten an email in about oh, two shit. months. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Last yes. time we had a email was May 7th. Wow. I was feeling unloved for a second. I know. And you know how much we love email. But also, if you want to just like talk to us, uh, we have a Discord that we've posted the link for a few times. It's always chill in there. Mm -hmm. But... 
you send us an email, we'll read it on the show, no matter what the question is. So this one, uh, the subject line is Siri text to talk send email, and it comes from us from Woody Soon shared account at AOL.com. <laughs> I think this one might deserve some accompanying music. Let's see. <laughs> to the bullies at Extended Clip Radio Hour. Two weeks ago, I heard you riff-raff bad-mouthing my good friend and ongoing collaborator, Griffin Newman. I am no stranger to pranks and horseplay, but frankly, after the hatchet job you gave my other close friend and associate, Alan Dershowitz, I started to notice a disturbing pattern. Extended Clip is a haven for unabashed anti-Semitism. Attacking defenseless and innocent Jewish men like Newman and Dershowitz is uncalled for. But I should expect no less from anti-Israel leftists. Your smear campaigns against honest men have made the work of vicious anti-Semites like Jeremy Corbyn and David Duke look like a rainy day in New York. Your program should be cancelled. I sincerely hope that more individuals will come forward and call you brutes out for your toxic behavior and the brain-dead ignoramus that hired you rackus shock jock digs the rocks out of his skull and fires you. If you even think about reviewing one of my films for your program, including my upcoming comedy about love in the age of COVID, Chinese virus, Parisian romance, I will take immediate legal action. Sincerely, an anonymous observer. Well, um, hey, I said it. You read it, we, or, uh, yeah. you send it, we read it. ADL, ACLU, come fuck with us, bro. I don't give a shit. Fuck, um, but I will, I will, I will say, um... For Alan Dershowitz, I guess he did clear the record a bit. Um, he he was with his wife every time <laughs> oh, he visited the Epstein Islands. So maybe to uh, pair him up with uh, Griffin Newman, who you know worked with Woody, <laughs> who's a known pedophile. That's on the books. Whereas Alan Dershowitz might have had some bad friends, but um, we shouldn't just lump him in with Griffin Newman. I mean, I think that's when we're getting dangerous with our language. So um, Alan, we were a little harsh on you. Maybe we maybe, <laughs> maybe maybe we need just to maybe you need to tell us how it really was because I think only you would know. So I'm gonna trust. Yeah, you Alan Dershowitz, one. come on the pod, please. First, it was I just was kicking it with the staff. Now it's I was kicking it with my wife <laughs> and the staff. Come on, get your story straight. True, Trump had the best defense come out the gate. He's like, I was just chilling with the staff, and you know, all, all of his all the people who fucked with him were like, you know what? He was just chilling with the staff. So it's like that's like me at the gym. I just chill with the staff. <laughs> uh, on Twitter, where I extended clip sixty nine. I'm at iPod underscore video. I'm at at bitch face palace. I'm at tall boy thin legs. And uh, big things coming up for the pod. That's all I'm saying. Um, not sure what we're doing next week. Might have a guest. Might not. But July. I'm just gonna say it right now. The summer of extended clip is upon us. Watch out. It's like a blockbuster. It means we have like two guests lined up that we're pretty excited about. <laughs> so yeah. Well, uh, see you next week. Everybody's talking at me. I can't hear a word they're saying. Just driving around in John Voight's car. Like someone showed me that like freshman year of college. And I threw up. <laughs> um, yeah that's i haven't seen that one that one's that one's rough that's a rough description <laughs> right there yeah those yeah. those videos could get me too 
I think I, I think I take comfort in that it's a movie. You yeah. know what I mean? Because there's like, it's like, you could pretty much find videos of like the most fucked up shit of all time on, online now, just, you know, pretty easily. Yeah, Just a no. couple clicks. Exactly. That's, I mean, that's why like in Solo, I mean, it wasn't real like shit or anything. Could, right? No, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> that, That'd be great because there's like uh, no spoilers, but there's like a scene where you just see a huge vat of shit, like just like a huge vat of shit, and it's like if that was all real shit. It's like that was years in the making. How many, <laughs> how many I mean, turds they had to pile up? 